All right, guys, I'm Scott Horton, and uh, I'm on the line with Phil Gibson. This is a Q&A show. It's the old whole show feed. I don't have a live show right now. I will again someday, I guess. But on this old whole show feed, I do a Q&A show. You guys can all hear it, but the questions come from the Reddit room. And for those who donate five bucks a month to the show, you get keys to the Reddit room. It's like Tom Wood's private Facebook group, except I hate Facebook, so it's Reddit instead. Uh, you can find out about that if you search for it, scotthorn.org slash donate and so forth. But anyway, so we'll try to do this every couple of weeks or so, and I hate just sitting and recording a podcast to myself. So I got Phil Gibson here to uh, sit and listen to me talk and uh, I guess read off the questions. Let me know what it is that we're dealing with today. And um, so, by the way, you can find the archive of the real show, which is the interview feed there, of course, at scotthorton.org, scotthorton.org slash interviews. And uh, I'm writing more some for antiwar.com, antiwar.com slash Scott. And let's see, the Libertarian Institute, I'm the director of that, libertarianinstitute.org. And I wrote the book, Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan. You can find out about that at foolserrand.us. And I think I'm leaving out one. <laughs> I can't remember. Anyway, do the stuff. Uh, so anyway, how are you doing, Phil? Hi. Hey, Scott. What's up, man? I'm doing oh, I should mention well. my sponsors, too. The Liberty, uh, LibertyStickers.com and the TheBumperSticker.com, uh, Mike Swanson's uh, WallStreetWindow.com and The War State. And then, of course, there's uh, Liberty Under Attack publishing, which is a great new independent uh, libertarian publishing group there. And um, then there, who am I forgetting? Oh, you got uh, No Dev, No Ops, No IT, this great book. It really is great about how to run your business like a libertarian. Uh, It's really good. No Dev, No Ops, No IT by Hussein Badakchani. And then Commodity Discs. Yeah, Commodity Discs, um, commoditydiscs.com. It's a silver with a QR code on it. Anybody who donates 100 bucks to the show gets one, if you want. And uh, there's also expanddesigns.com. That's uh, the great Harley Abbott, who uh, is the webmaster for my sites and will build a site for you, too. So check out all of my uh, advertisers there in the right-hand margin at scotthorton.org. All right, so now business. Say something. Oh, well, let's not forget Will Griggs' book. Everyone should buy that. Everyone should buy that. It's um, no quarter. The ravings of William Norman Grigg, scarcely touched by me. I won't claim to be the editor of it. Really, Thomas Edlam, I guess, is the editor of it. And Thomas Edlam wrote a great introduction, which is this biography of Will there. And it's such a great book. And speaking of books, let's talk about this first. The Great Ron Paul, the Scott Horton Show interviews 2004 through 2019 is coming out any day now. All I'm waiting for really is for the computer genius expert dudes to uh, one of them to finish the cover art, combining the art with the words and such and the right template. And then having the other guy combine that with the text for the Kindle and EPUB version and then having the other guy get all that ready in the PDF format to upload to be the uh, paperback version. And so it should be up and going by the end of the week. Uh, the great Ron Paul, the Scott Horton show interviews should be published by the end of the week, uh, at Amazon and et cetera, like that. And at libertarian Institute and scotthorton.org, you'll be able to find out all about it. And then next week, 
at the should be at the latest next week we will be coming out with Sheldon Richmond's book Yay. Why Palestine Matters and this is a collection of essays that he did between 1989 and 94 and then again from 2014 through this year and they're so good it's such great history and uh, uh, really important stuff and it's going to have a great couple of introductions by uh, important people whose names you may be familiar with or not. I don't know. And um, so that's something for Sheldon to be really proud of and for all of us to be proud of putting out at the Libertarian Institute that that's coming out. Then I get to get back to work on my book, uh, Enough Already, or whatever we call it, about you know my history of the terror wars and why to call them off. So, and then that'll be coming out. I have no idea when. I'm not making promises, but I am going to work really hard on knocking that thing out and getting out as fast as I can for everybody. So, uh, yep, check out all about that at libertarianinstitute.org. Uh, big news will be coming in the next week and two on that. And then, in fact, we're going to have a page, libertarianinstitute.org slash books, where we have Fool's Errand, No Quarter, the great Ron Paul and why Palestine matters all there for you. So, and in fact, there's going to be uh, one more book. I'm not sure when it's done, but Thomas Edlam is hard at work on it now. And that is a collection of uh, Will Grigg essays. One last Will Grigg book. Uh, and it'll be called the stolen life of Christopher Tapp about the false conviction of this poor, innocent guy in this bogus trial and bogus set of circumstances there in Idaho, which is something that, in the two years since Will died, it's been proven beyond a shadow of a doubt how innocent this guy is and who did it instead and that Will was right, of course. So um, that might not be till early next year or something. I'm not exactly sure, but that's it's in line. All right. Now go ahead and change the subject to questions in the thingamajig. You bet. So let's just uh, dust this off our plate and bring up Epstein. And I kind of recently heard uh, something from uh, the Ripple Effect a uh, nice lady from uh, Mint Press, I believe is what it's called, was actually discussing how um, Epstein had some connections to Netanyahu's opponent. So that might be one reason why this is okay to talk about, even on like the morning shows. And then I think it's kind of a distraction from the collapse of the dollar and just the global economy. But uh, I don't know. What do, you th- what do you think about all that? Well... He's certainly tied to Ehud Barak, you know, no question about that. They're investors in business together and apparently personal friends. Whether that has anything to do with why it's okay for the media to cover it, because that's what Netanyahu, no, I don't buy that. I mean, the fact is, this is, uh, well, I don't know. You know what? I guess it's possible that Netanyahu had the Justice Department indict this guy just to make Barack look bad, but I don't think so. I I am a little puzzled why they even pursued this case in New York. Essentially, they got away with letting him get away with it. So I was a little surprised that they even indicted him. But, uh, you know, maybe somebody decided that he was too close to talking. I certainly believe that he was murdered. I mean, I don't believe that I can prove that or that it's been proven, but you know, certainly the benefit of the doubt goes to he was gotten rid of, not that he killed himself, what he hanged himself with paper sheets from what the ceiling fan in his cell or what, they don't even explain that part of it and uh, I mean, I guess it's possible but I just don't think so 
And you know what? I doubt he was going to talk. I think he probably would have just gone to trial and got convicted and done his time. Um, you know, his blackmail was not, and I better never go to jail, you know, because that's too difficult to arrange if it comes down to that. I mean, I actually did pretty good with that for a little while anyway. But I think, you know, it's clear that he was tied to some intelligence, presumably American and Israeli intelligence. Um, I admit that I have not read the Whitney Webb series at Mint Press News. I, you know what, honestly, I started reading what I guess was the first one. Uh, in fact, I think I read a couple of them or, you know, parts of a couple of them. But, uh, and it could be just that I am too distracted and spread too thin to devote the time to it. But I kind of, you know, no offense, find her writing too scattered and annoying. I got it. Maybe it's my fault. I got to keep up with too many threads at the same time. Everything kind of feels like every paragraph should end with, and we'll get back to that later on if you're lucky, but it sort of feels unresolved and and I, I sort of, I have to look at every single link to get the real point or what, you know, it's just too much work to, to make sense of, of all of her stuff in there that doesn't seem very linearly told. Um, but at the same time though, that's not to in any way discredit the work that she's doing there. I mean, like I say, I just kind of find the writing off putting the way it is, um, and I've just been really busy and haven't had the time to really devote to it. Um, but I wouldn't doubt that she's right about this. I mean, Acosta, who was the secretary of labor who resigned in this scandal for letting this guy off the hook, had been the U.S. attorney in charge of letting him off the hook back then. And he explained why. He said that he was told that this is above your pay grade. This guy belongs to intelligence. So you essentially are not to get in the way of that continuing. And so, which by the way, I'm sorry, I just had to bring this up because I don't know of any other place I'm going to have the opportunity to bring this up. You saw that the guy that shot all the cops in Philadelphia was a federal rat. And he had committed all of these violent felonies against, I don't know, other gang members or innocent civilians or whoever in Philadelphia and the feds were protecting him and ended up getting all those local sh uh, cop shop. Anyway, these things happen. Um, but so, you know, and look, and one thing that I know that Webb has done is shown like, and, and others have written about this too, that there's this long history of American intelligence. And of course the FBI and whoever using honey traps to get at especially powerful people. Um, who are, you know, likely to indulge themselves uh, when they feel untouchable and, and walk themselves into a trap. And I think, I'm sorry, I don't know the source, but, uh, you know, apparently his madam, his assistant, was on the record saying that his place in the Virgin Islands, you know, his rape island down there, was wired for sound and video, and same thing for his house in New York and stuff like that. So, I mean, the whole thing sounds like an op, and for a guy like that, seems like exactly the right connection that he would make. I did read a piece about his madam's father, who's his apparent intelligence connection, you know, direct intelligence connection there. And he was a, quite apparently a Mossad, you know, if not agent, at least a Sionim, which is 
sort of their word for an honorary asset of Mossad, right? Not an agent, but someone who is doing their part <laughs> and that kind of thing. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I mean, I presume them guilty, essentially. Yeah, I think this is um, the way the Israelis, especially, and the Americans, too, uh, the way they do business. And it really, I think it goes to show, too, that at the top of the pyramid, it is the state. At the top of the pyramid of power, it's the CIA. You know, the intelligence agencies, they are the ones who end up being the blackmailers of the Senate, the bankers, the politicians, and all the Wall Street guys and whoever. At the end of the day, they're the ones who had the real impunity. They're the ones in the position to make themselves the the highest unaccountable power. You know, and so that's a great way to do it. It's such an easy way to do it. As Hornberger said on my show yesterday, I guess this isn't published yet, but Hornberger says, you know, probably most of these politicians were under the impression that these girls were over 18. But then, uh-huh, you know, they get a note the next day saying, gotcha. And and in fact, this was one of the theories that's, um, yeah, I should mention, because it is sort of the Occam's razor simplest explanation your non-intelligence agency blackmail explanation, which is just, this is how this guy made money. This was just his hustle. Was, you better invest in my hedge fund, or I'm going to show these pictures to whichever cops or lawyers or wives or whatever, business partners or whatever it is that'll ruin you. And so I'm sure that was probably, you know, part of it, if not the whole thing. But who really knows what I think is funny? You know, I remember when Ron Brown's plane went down. This was a Bill Clinton era cabinet official. And there was a question whether he had a bullet hole in his head or not. I guess I would presume probably not. You know, I don't know. It's probably an accident. Stupid plane crash. But there was a local talk radio lady in town. And her point was, since we can't really know yet, that's all just speculation. What's more interesting is how everybody just assumes that the president murdered his own cabinet official. Like, look at how easy it is to look at Bill Clinton and think, yeah, he probably did it. And so in that sense, it almost doesn't matter whether he did it or not. It only matters that it's eminently believable, (laughs) you know, and same thing here. Who do you think killed him? Was it Trump or was it Clinton or was it, you know, brand X hedge fund manager who we don't know. We don't know exactly which gangster hired the other gangster to murdelate this guy's neck, but you know, and I assume that it was not Clinton or Trump. I don't think they'd get anywhere near this thing now. But they don't have to. Somebody's going to take care of it. I wrote a month before he died. I wrote on the Libertarian Institute blog, how's he going to suicide himself? Is he going to uh, suffocate himself to death or is he going to shoot himself in the back of the head? And I ain't the only one. There were plenty of people who were saying this guy's never going to make it to trial. No way. Come on. You know? It can't be Trump because he's not a killer. And oh, if, sure he is. Why, why wouldn't Trump kill someone? Well, Trump I mean, kills yeah, people but every day. <laughs> well, yeah, but I mean, that's like the wars that Obama kind of already started. And the only reason he's probably in there is because, you know, it's going to get him reelected if, if he just says or does what John Bolton or Mike Pompeo tells him to do. Well, that's probably true. And I, I do think that he would not do a hit like this. There's no way a president is going to get his hands dirty on something like this. And that goes for Bill Clinton too. Nobody, you know, 
They might have done dirty deeds with him, especially Bill Clinton is far the more likely of the two, although they both were pretty close with this guy at certain times anyway. But apparently Bill Clinton went with him to Thailand. And that, you know what, maybe it was just business, but really, I don't think so. You know, I, I'm sure. And you know what? He lied about it, too. He goes, well, look, I was on this guy's plane four times. And then the real number was like 64 and traveled <laughs> all around the world year in and year out. And you know what? There was this whole other story, actually, that I don't think was about Epstein. You know what? Let me look this up right now because I bet I can find it really easily. I thought it was only like 26 times Bill was on. 26 times? So there was this article back in 08 about, oh, this guy, Ron Burkle. Do you know who that is? No idea. So it's funny. This article is, it's in Vanity Fair. It's called The Comeback Id (laughs) about Bill Clinton. And it's about how, you know, in these inter-period times there when his wife is in the Senate or State Department and he's off goofing around before he's got to run <laughs> with her for national office again, that they were driving around, uh, riding around with this guy Burkle on this plane that they called Air Fuck One as a, That's you know, awesome. like Air Force, but that just essentially they had hoes with them all the time. <laughs> and <laughs> this is just, you know... So when it comes to him palling around with on what Epstein apparently himself called the Lolita Express, uh, you know, or whatever the the child rape bus or whatever the hell they all called it. um, That's not an accident that Bill Clinton's doing stuff like that. You know, he's supposed to have people who work for him who would advise him whether or not it's a good idea to get on this guy's plane or not or what. And then for him to accidentally pal around with this guy. 24 times, you say, I guess. I thought it was more than that, but okay. 24 is still a hell of a lot of times, but still, yeah. But anyway, uh, the point is, back to the point. Would anybody be surprised if Bill Clinton or Donald Trump participated in the most depraved kind of behaviors with this guy? And, And would anybody deny that that's the society we live in? Where, like Ice Cube says, everything's corrupt. Everything, you know? There was a a story that came out where the Boy Scouts hired a lawyer to do an internal audit and they had like 37,000 cases of child abuse that they had covered up. You know, I just read a story in the forward today where they changed the statute of limitations on lawsuits in New York and they expect a flood of civil lawsuits over child rape in the Orthodox Jewish community there. Uh, essentially anywhere in America where anyone has any power, they abuse it. You know, there's no honor in any of this kind of thing. So now I would say, and look, this isn't partisan because I don't think that George W. Bush or Barack Obama would rape someone. Now they commit genocide with the military and these kinds of things. But in terms of personal behavior, I don't think any of them would ever do that. But do I think that Bill Clinton or Donald Trump would? Hell yeah. And those guys are the most selfish, sociopathic type of... They're exactly the kind of guys who would do that. And we know that it's a fact that Bill Clinton is a rapist. I don't know if it's a fact he's a child rapist, but it's a fact that he's a rapist, a face-biting sicko 
So you know what's funny is that you know they're trying to keep Biden like number one as the front runner. I think I think Kamala is gonna pass him easily. But I mean, just understanding his reputation and history, it's kind of you you wonder like you know if they want to keep him up front, like they wouldn't try to expose this whole Epstein thing because he's all. Biden's already got that sick reputation of being, you know, some of these things get out of control too, man. It's not all that easy, but yeah, you're right. They want him. And you know, what's funny is they actually went after him for groping grown adult women a few times, but he kind of skated on that, but nobody mentioned all the pictures of him groping little kids. Cause that's so gross that they don't want to admit that, geez, if that's true, they've kind of been covering for him all this time, haven't they? And so they kind of left it at that, but I'm thinking, I mean, Trump wouldn't leave it at that. If he actually got the nomination, you think Trump is going to not run ads with those pictures in them? And there, some of them are, there's no question that he is over the line. You know, like he thinks no one's looking, he's going to get away with it and feels up this little girl where she's like, ooh, and elbows him and steps out of the way, you know, like her parents taught her and like is her natural reaction. Like, what is this creepy old man doing to me? Kind of attitude. And I just think it's a matter of time before a reporter asks him, have you ever been to Jeffrey Epstein's Island? How many children have you raped in your life? You sick bastard. Cause he clearly, and in fact, even after he got in all this trouble over this the first time, which not that much trouble, but after he got in a little bit of trouble over this, he then said to a little girl at this event, Oh, you're so pretty and all this stuff. And is like petting her hair. And she's like, Oh, what's going on here? And they're like, Hey, Joe, we talked to you about this. What are you doing? You can't do this. And I like how it's like, you can't do this in these crazy, me too, super politically correct times. You can't grope people's children. When was this ever okay for anyone other than Joe Biden to behave like this? You know, particularly in public like that, where people, you know what I mean? Like they turned aside from FDR was cheating on his wife with adults, you know, but this is kind of different. You know what I mean? I thought he was a, a cousin porker too. Did, Biden, did he marry? Oh, cousin? I don't know about that, but I wouldn't doubt no, it. No, 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 not about FDR. Oh, oh yeah, no, yeah, he did marry his cousin, of course. Eleanor had to, but yeah, man. So, anyways, uh, here's the thing of it, though. Uh, yeah, that's that's. You know what? If there's Ain't only one America. Epstein, if there's not a team of Epsteins up there compromising your congressmen and your powerful businessmen and politicians and and uh you know uh high level financial capitalists all day long then yeah we do too i mean come on you know epstein is just one and he's uh i I wouldn't be surprised to find out that things were you know just as bad as anybody said and there's a lot of hyperbole about this stuff in sort of conspiracy theory land. But then again, they have a lot of real history that they can cite for the overall narrative of how these things go. You know, the Franklin cover up and some of these other things going back into the years. Well, and this is how business thing. is done in America, man. These guys are crazy. They are and they're mean as hell. And see, here's the problem. Regular people who aren't actually ruthless and can't imagine taking pleasure in hurting a helpless innocent person they also can't really imagine that other people really are like that but sure they are and if they're well born enough then they go into business or politics rather than to the penitentiary and that's just the fact you know the usa today one time ran this whole thing about how it's so interesting and weird how 
psychopaths and politicians share many of the same behaviors and traits. Like, uh, yeah, in other words, psychopaths become politicians. The ones who are smart enough to not instantly give in to their urges and sabotage themselves into the pen, they go into politics and power. It's exactly right. And yes, people are ruthless and cruel and would enjoy hurting helpless innocent people some people are like that it's true how many how many of those people do you think that go into politics and turn into psychopaths just because of like the stuff they see and hear or i think that's part of it you know they say power corrupts absolutely and all that yeah. i mean it, it makes people stupid it may look everybody is self-serving as hell in their arguments i was just now talking with uh this historian uh gar alpervitz oh Alperowitz. Alperowitz? I forgot how to pronounce it. Alperowitz. And he wrote about Nuke in Japan. And one of the, his tangents was, listen, all these people tell themselves all day what heroes they are and what good they're doing for the world and how they're helping people and how they're saving people. You can see it right now with Afghanistan. Marianne Williamson, the sweet, nice, new age, you know, basically a, a warm hug in a dress, running for office, said last week, we cannot leave, we cannot pull our troops out of Afghanistan until we have guaranteed that the rights of women there will be protected. In other words, never. And then what that really means, not pull our troops out, in other words, leave them there to do things to people, it means killing, sometimes, women, too. And continuing a war that's made life miserable for people there for almost 20 years now. But to her, it's like asking Superman to not save a cat from a tree. You're asking, you're asking good power personified to turn its back on people who need it. How cruel and cold can you be? And that's the conception of it. That's how they look at it. And if you say no, dude, you're talking about dropping J-dams on women, tearing their bodies apart, killing them to death in the most horrific ways that you couldn't even really imagine. Imagine half of your house being completely blown apart along with your family members on that side there don't exist anywhere in time and space anymore, completely vaporized by the shockwave. Oh, yeah. No, but that's to protect the women, see? And and it's like a magic wish. Power is like a magic wish. The government, the cops, the soldiers, they're here to make your opinion become reality and always skip, you know, never consider the mess that's made the real consequences for real people. That's just how it is. It's like you see people all the time where they call the cops on somebody because their stereo is too loud. And then the cops come and execute the guy. It's like, oh. so this is what you wanted, man. A neighborhood with no loud stereos. And you got it good and hard. Are you happy? Like, is that okay? And But to most people, they might even read that in the newspaper 10 times, but they'll still be the same one to call the cops next week on the, some other guy for no good reason, too. 
you know, I heard a gunshot that was like almost certainly a gunshot going off in a backyard where probably it wasn't just target practice. I don't know what was going on. I didn't hear anyone scream, but I wouldn't dream of calling the cops. I think I'm going to call the cops. They're going to kick in this guy's score and kill him. And then for all I know, like, he's got an old Fiat back there and it backfired. <laughs> I don't know what's going on in this guy's yard. I'm going to call the Gestapo stormtroopers of death to, to make my neighborhood quiet in just the way I want. And that's what most people would do in that situation. They wouldn't even think twice. And it's the same thing with all this stuff, you know, power, you know, like I dream a genie doing you a favor and it just happens. Um, that's how grown adults seem to continue to conceive of these things, you know? Anyway, sorry, I'm off on a tangent, but yeah. No, it's all, it's all good, man. Uh, just the more in depth I get, uh, and hear stuff on social media, just about cops or whatever, uh, the more of a gun guy I turn into. So like everyone needs a gun. Everyone needs training, but like protect yourself. I'll tell you what. Hey, sign up for the free thought project evening email. Oh my God. Every single day, the criminality of American police. It's just insane to see. It's just, it's so out of control. I won't, I'm not even going to mention, but just go look at that website. And occasionally there's some goofy stuff that's off topic, but 99% of it is just police abuse stuff. That's just. Uh, some yeah. insight on Iran's foreign minister showing up at G7. Well, I think, I don't know what was going on there if the Americans, you know, some of the Americans said, oh, well, we didn't know this was going to happen and we're angry or whatever. But then there were other indications that Trump knew it was going to happen and maybe had given a green light to the French prime minister or pre- French president to invite him. Um, but then, you know, I don't think Zarif is dumb enough to meet with Donald Trump. And, you know, Trump linked something. I guess it was yesterday, too, and the same kind of thing about how he wouldn't mind meeting with Rouhani. Maybe he would meet with Rouhani. But Rouhani responded. That's the president of Iran. And Rouhani responded, I'm not going to meet with you. I'm not going to meet with this guy until he lifts his sanctions. You know, we're being treated completely unfairly here, and you're not bringing us to the table under those circumstances. You lift the sanctions first, and then I'll meet with you which is the position that Trump has put himself in. The Iranians would be absolutely nuts to give in at this point. When everyone can see, we had a perfectly good deal. Trump picked this fight for no reason. Not even the French, the British, the Germans agree with him about it and the policy. They're all just waiting for him to get unelected somehow and to try to get back to it. Iran has stayed almost entirely within the deal. In fact, they have stayed entirely within the deal because the deal itself says that if America breaks it, they can start breaking some of their limits too and that that's part of the game for you know possibly keeping it and getting back to it. But officially, Iran and the rest of the major powers are still within the Iran nuclear deal. They have not done anything like break out toward a nuclear bomb or anything like that. And so Trump doesn't have a leg to stand on. His position here is entirely illegitimate and everybody knows it. And... Um, he's almost in the position. It's like he's begging them to now come and talk to him because he's painted himself in this corner and dear Mr. Rouhani, will you now bail me out and help give me a win here? But from the Iranians point of view, why would they do any such thing? How does that give him a win? If even like the Democrats and Republicans just want to wage war on Iran, like how does Trump win and get reelected for that? 
Well, I don't think the Democrats and the Republicans really want to wage a war against Iran. They well, they I mean, actually the like this status quo, severe sanctions and along with Iranian compliance. But the thing is, is Obama had worked out a deal to, you know, they were still contained in all the most important ways, but they had a stable, you know, finished negotiation on the nuclear program. And Trump, you know what, if he wanted to come in and try to say, hey, we got to get rid of those sunsets and I'd like to add missiles, he should have tried to kill him with kindness. He probably would have succeeded by now. If he had just come in and told the Israelis and told all the hawks that, listen, I know what I'm doing here, and then go in there and shake their damn hand till their arm falls off, and, and go in there and do as many business deals as possible, and go in there and tell the Ayatollah, listen, man, I got these people breathing down my neck about these sunset provisions, and it would be a real help to me if you would, right, if he'd been playing in good faith this whole time with them. And say, listen, it would really help me out. We all know you're not making nukes anyway. Just agree to go ahead and lift the sunsets. We're going to keep the centrifuge levels at this at least till, I don't know, another add another 10 years to them. Something, anything. Dude, if he wanted a- to win like that, he could have probably gotten one if he'd played it that way. But he's been, this has been the most ridiculous and ham-handed negotiation. And he's waging a full-scale economic war against them. And so, you know... He figures he can force them to bend and come to the table. But they're looking at it more like they have more to lose by letting this strategy of his succeed in bringing them to the table. And if they do that, then they're giving away the whole store. They might as well let him move in. And so they're going to not do that. And we've seen them resist that. He keeps doing all this brutal stuff and then keeps offering talks and they keep rejecting the idea of talks. Have they even gotten the Grace One back yet? You know, uh, I don't know. I, I, you know what? I know that Gibraltar let the Iranian boat go. Um, but honestly, I forgot all about that. Uh, I really don't know. I, I bet Jason, you Dan McAdams knows. I would say follow the Ron Paul Institute's got that one for you. That's funny. No, I mean, you would wish that politics was dealt kind of like a business, but I mean, I think Trump is either too stupid to negotiate or he's just. Uh, afraid just because of all the influence that surrounds him because i mean it could be as easy as just you know killing them with kindness and getting whatever needs to actually be done but then i also kind of wonder if playing hard on iran is just a facade to make the like dollar hegemony just look strong when you know behind it all you know we're actually economically kind of suffering so i don't know if it's just like a huge piece of rhetoric or what yeah, no, I mean, the deal is that um, the Israelis' policy is that Iran cannot have a nuclear program at all. And that America giving in to the continued existence of their enrichment program is intolerable and unacceptable. And so Barack Obama's deal must be null and void, and it, it'd be better to have a war than to have this compromise is Israeli policy and therefore is Trump's policy. There's no mystery to it at all. And it's not about the dollar. It's about this is what Israel and what Israel's partisans in the United States demand. Interesting. Okay, so I've been uh, looking forward to this next question. Uh, just your your views on Reagan's foreign policy or I guess his presidency. Well... For his whole presidency, there's a funny thing by Rothbard called Ronald Reagan, an autopsy. 
from right after his presidency ended. Um, so, you know, I don't know. I mean, there's a million things here. Um, you know, first of all, he, I think quite unnecessarily built up brinksmanship with the Soviet Union in his first term and then ended up negotiating a lot of that build up away. And you could say that in a sense, he and his successor, H.W. Bush, achieved the greatest thing that anybody ever achieved, which was at least all other things being equal, <laughs> ignoring his role in increasing these numbers in the first place. But still, um, he reduced the total help negotiate with the Soviet Union and then uh, Bush Sr., his uh, vice president and successor with Russia, to get rid of tens of thousands of nuclear weapons and to end the Cold War. And so it was brinksmanship, but it was a brinksmanship with a purpose. And essentially, it did work. The Soviet participation in that arms race and their falling for Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan's bait to double down and bog themselves down in Afghanistan, combined with a Saudi economic war against them, an agreement to drop the price of oil so low that the Soviets were basically bankrupted and, and couldn't make any money uh, selling oil at all. And, uh, you know, this strategy did help to destroy communism. At the same time, communism was pretty good at destroying itself. And the people of Russia and the people of the Soviet Union had a hell of a lot to do with the decisions that they made. So I'm not going to sit here and give Reagan all the credit for it or whatever. But I will say that, you know, that much is true. The people who defend his legacy, who say that, you know, the way that he played it in the 80s, in the early 80s helped with the, you know, to provoke the final collapse in the late 80s. Uh, it, there's a lot of truth in that. Um, it's at the cost of a hell of a lot of lives and at the cost of a lot of policies that we continue to deal with to this day, including Al-Qaeda that attacks us, uh, you know, which was originally the Arab-Afghan army that the U.S. and the Saudis and Pakistanis supported against the Soviets in Afghanistan under Reagan, starting with Carter, um, but then definitely doubled down with Reagan. And, um, of course, his uh, Latin America policy was horrible. Uh, there were, you know, leftist governments that came to power in uh, Nicaragua and El Salvador, and he supported horrible right-wing death squads to murder, murder them, essentially, and cancel those revolutions, uh, which, just like the USSR, would have fallen apart on their own time anyway. Um, communism is a really bad way to... Hey, you could study this. You need prices, essentially. You need private... You need... There's nothing magic about the private property as much as just because it's diverse. You need lots of different separate property owners competing in a market system to figure out which resources need to go where. That's just as simple as that, man. That's how it works, and it doesn't work without that. And so none of this was necessary as far as, you know, protecting America or protecting American interests in any real way. Now, connected interests, sure. So in Nicaragua, well, this is all from memory. It's been a long time. I, I bet I'm right if we go back, though. In Nicaragua, there were American companies like PepsiCo who wanted to seize their water resources. And the right-wing government was going along with that. And the left-wing government was trying to stop them. The new government was trying to stop them. And so you had 
you know, a couple of corporations where they could have got their water from any other place and it wouldn't have made any difference to American consumers at all. There's no way that you could call that America's national interest at all, but it is the special interest of the company who, you know, they have their own problems there. And so that, you know, this has often been a problem with, you know, the gumboat diplomacy and banana Republic, uh, this and that, like in Smedley Butler, that you have American investors in foreign countries. And then you have the U S military as, and, and covert operations and whatever are essentially a mercenary force. They're there to protect very narrow interests, not any broad national interest, but just these fruit growers, these plantation owners, these oil companies, or uh, whichever in, in that kind of manner. So, and Reagan was into a hell of a lot of that. And then, of course, you know, a major part of his legacy is that his CIA, part of how they funded the war in Nicaragua, was they brought in tons, and I mean tons, of cocaine into California, into Bill Clinton's Arkansas, and into Florida. And, you know, particularly the most important part of this is the consequences for Southern California and then reverberating out from there. So what happened was, it's not just that drugs are bad. It's that government brought in this huge quantity of cocaine at the same time, not only did they keep it illegal and force it into the black market, but they cranked up all the punishments and all of the funding for the cops doing the enforcing of all of the drug laws. So they essentially doubled prohibition at the same time that they were pentupling supply or God knows what number, astronomical amount of supply. So this created just an absolute perfect storm of essentially a war among the poor and especially the poor and black in Southern California, in, in Los Angeles. And so you had the Crips and the Bloods fighting, I mean, with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds dead. That would give the cops something to do. Well, it did. And the cops went to the <laughs> Marine Corps and the Marine Corps had learned a lot of counterinsurgency doctrine from the LAPD, but the LAPD had kind of forgotten it, but they had taught it to the Marines. So when the Marines came back from Vietnam, the LAPD hired the Marines to come teach them their counterinsurgency doctrine again. So, but that, what that means is just like in Iraq war two, it means sweeps of fighting age males. That means treating the population, the civilian population of South LA like a war zone. And it means putting people in prison for the rest of their lives. In many cases, for decades and decades, ruining their lives forever over one pocket full of drugs. Whether they were actually distributing anything or not, maybe they just bought some. But oh, this is enough rocks. You've got 35 years now. This kind of just insane crackdown on drugs, on people who are poor, and this is the other part of it, is they're poor people, and so the fact that it's a prohibited black market kept the price astronomically high, and so... They're rocking it up to make it affordable. But smoking cocaine on the regular is way worse than snorting it up your nose, apparently. I've seen some crack zombies in my cab driving days. That's the real thing, man. And it was absolutely devastating for that part, you know, their society. 
It was absolutely horrible. And then with that, again, came all the counterinsurgency and all the massive crackdown by the cops. You know, there was once a cop, he he later committed suicide um, years later, but there was a cop, um, he was kind of a kook too, eventually, but, you know, he was still right about this. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm stalling because his name is on the tip of my tongue. Uh, he was cop versus CIA. And he was one of the original 9-11 truthers, by the way. Um, I'm sorry, it's right on the edge of my brain. Um, but anyway, you know, he was a LAPD and he was doing and working with the DEA doing drug raids and stuff. And then they quickly realized they were up against the CIA. And that the drug dealers in town were working for the intelligence agencies. And so here they were supposed to be the federal badass drug SWAT cops. And they're essentially being made monkeys out of by the, and the LAPD too. And they're being made monkeys out of by the CIA. And now, so anyway, then the consequences of all of that, of the drug war, uh, and the, the level of prohibition and the increase of supply, in Southern California, the creation of that massive war between the Crips and the Bloods, and then how that spread to ghettos all across the country and became a whole new excuse. You know, the direct consequences of the previous policy then became the excuse for all new crackdowns on guns, on Fourth Amendment procedures, on searches, and on prison time. You know what they call the powder crack cocaine disparity where you could get 10 years for some powder. You could get life for some crack for the same amount. I mean, the, the cocaine sentences are completely out of control as it is. But then the and what it was, of course, is because people have no imagination. So they're like, help us do something. We need severe punishments against those people who would sell this poison to our kids. And so it's like, dude, all, you're essentially begging the Marines to invade your town and go to war against you and your children, the same ones you're trying to protect. Oops. And, you know, it's, so it's like it's the worst part of the entire drug war era of the last 50 years is the consequences of Reagan's foreign policy in Nicaragua and his just say no garbage escalation of the drug war here against the American people. And that's one of the first things that really radicalized me as a kid, because just on the very face of it, who's, you know what, like what's the favorite drug of rich people who do abuse illegal drugs or even have fun, I don't know, responsibly using illegal drugs. (laughs) It's cocaine. It's cocaine. But then you're going to have this massive drug war against poor black people for using cocaine. And by the way, that cocaine was brought in by the CIA of the very government that's doing the crackdown. That's unfair, man. How can that be that that's the way that our system works? How can can it be? And imagine that you're one of those people locked in a concrete cell for the rest of your life because you're rounded up in some sweep over some bullshit accused of a conspiracy to sell cocaine with your crip friends from the neighborhood and you got to sit there in a concrete cell like you're already dead and buried for nothing can you explain why the u.s bought the drugs was that to like placate the right-wing governments that they supported in south america well what happened was congress passed the boland amendment that forbid the spending of money on covert operations to support the contras in nicaragua Right. And so the CIA said, well, we'll just sell drugs then. 
And that was why they did it. It was because Congress wouldn't pay them, so they had to come up with secret funding. And they also took the money from selling missiles to the Iranians. <laughs> At the same time, they were supporting Saddam Hussein against them, of course. And there's a couple more here. I'll try to be fast. Why, yeah, we, why we do we get along with Vietnam one. is essentially this question, right? So my answer to that is, I think, as he says, well, we already lost. There's nothing we can do there. They've essentially accepted that they lost the war in Vietnam. And they look, one, strategically on Vietnam as a, a hedge against China. They want to make friends with as many of China's neighbors as they can. And then also, you know, there was a push by Vietnam veterans, including John McCain, for probably some cynical reasons, but also I think for some kind of human reasons, that they said, we still have such hard feelings over this war and that we really ought to do visits back and forth and we really ought to open up diplomatic relations. And I, f I think they found that it would be, it was really easy to convince the Vietnamese communist government. It's still a communist one party dictatorship there, but that they'd be crazy to not follow the Deng Xiaoping model, which is you can keep your dictatorship, but you should adopt a fascist economy, if not a capitalist one for so that you can earn money and have things and they decided that it was worth it and so that was their compromise with us it we turned ho chi minh city into a factory for american sneakers and so you know what all other things being equal it's great and there's some probably some cynical and cruel exploitation going on there too i'm not saying it's all perfect um, but I'm saying it's a hell of a lot better than killing two million of them, which is the previous history. If people could believe it or not. And it's and it's really it's a way of checking the Chinese in a in a larger strategic sense. Um, and then. So he says, so then somebody else asked me how I uh, what's my process for reading all of this stuff? Do I save and annotate everything I read and what? OK, so the answer to that is. Um, I uh, I take a lot of notes for my book now, but otherwise, no. Otherwise, um, you know, I essentially, my cheat is that I interview the authors of a lot of the things that I read. So not only did I get to read the article, but I get to ask follow-up questions and have a whole discussion with the guy about it. And I think that really helps to kind of carve grooves in my brain where I'm able to... Um, have a pretty good take and, and remember a pretty good take on whichever thing. And then I think I also have a very visual imagination too. So if I'm trying to remember where I read an article, I can oftentimes pull up at least sort of a vague representation of what that web page looks like. And then that'll remind me pretty quick of what that web page is and where it was that I read it. So that kind of helps me. Um, but no, I don't really file stuff. I think this is my reading schedule. I always know the latest in tech and whatever. That's because I'm working for antiwar.com. I mean, that's yeah, Jason Ditz. God damn. Well, so, so yeah, so Jason is our news editor there. I'm the opinion editor. And right now, Kyle Anzalone is, he gets all the credit for the work this summer, um, doing the viewpoint stuff. Uh, he's our new assistant editor there, but I'm still essentially reading everything that he's putting in and him and Eric are deciding on anyway. Um, and so a lot of what we run at antiwar.com is the American conservative, the national interest consortium news.com and the usual suspects, you know, as you go through there. So, um, 
that's why I'm always kind of, oh, did you see this? Oh, did you see that? It's because I'm immersed in antiwar.com. The, the news, Eric and, and Jason do the news all day long on the front page there. And then, you know, me and Kyle do the the viewpoints and it's a hell of a lot. And you know what? I have all these email lists. So every morning I read the forward and every morning I read Mondo Weiss and every morning I read the Wall Street Journal and every morning. And I get some a lot of times, man, I'll spend five, the first five, six hours of my day. I'm just sitting here reading and reading and reading and reading and trying Jeez, to stay on topic. Dude. So you ever go outside? You know, occasionally. I'll tell you what I don't do is listen to anyone's show at all. I don't watch TV virtually at all other than like <laughs> occasionally the Simpsons or some, um, you know, car restoration stuff during dinner. Otherwise it's, I'm just in here reading stuff. I just, it takes too long to listen to anything. So I've no disrespect to all the people who do all these great shows. Um, you can find a lot of great podcasts to listen to at libertarianinstitute.org. Just don't think that I heard whatever you heard on there. Cause I didn't. <laughs> Oh, there was a question last time if uh, you still skate at all, which sounds by the sounds of it, you don't. No, no, no. I do skate. Um, I uh, I'm going to go ride the bowl tomorrow. If anyone's around Brushy Creek Bowl tomorrow evening. Um, okay. No, I still skate vert is all I skate. Actually, there are, I don't know of any mini ramps and occasionally I skate, you know, concrete bowls tomorrow. I'll be skating a concrete bowl, but mostly we have a vert ramp. And in fact, the news is they're making it wider. It's a friend's vert ramp here in town in his backyard. And they're oh, making it nice. much wider. And so it's been very skinny and so therefore kind of limiting. But, uh, you know, I admit I am not much better, but I will, I guess, claim that I'm as good as I was in 98 or 2008. I'm, I don't seem to be getting worse yet. And I'm, <laughs> I'm slowly learning. And, and I'm not good. I mean, I have a very, very shallow bag of tricks on the big ramp. But I can got lots tray? of good skater friends and I still skate, you know, at least once every couple of months or something, you know. Can can, can you still tray flip? I, you know what? I swear to God, I've never been able to do a 360 flip in my life, dude. Uh, I have never. I used to be able to do, in fact, like 180 kickflips even on transition. Oh, nice. But I could not. I've never been able to do a 360 flip. And in fact, that's like one of my daydreams is that like one day I want to get a street board and just take a day and just do nothing until I learn that damn trick. I just, I don't know. We used to trample skate and I could do it on a trampoline, you know, on like oh, just yeah. a deck with no trucks. And and I could, I had them really dial where I could catch them in the air real well and everything. But I just, for whatever reason, I've never been. And you know what? Like all that flippy flip stuff came right after my heyday. So I'm really just a mini ramp guy and I never was uh I did a lot of ollies downstairs, but I never did kickflips downstairs or anything like that. That came after yeah. me. I was not the, and I'm not that good. I mean, I probably, I mean, I, I did, I could do some handrails and stuff, but can you still? I don't know flip? if I could have ever done a kickflip down a four or a five stair or something. Maybe not. Can, maybe can maybe still, on my best day I could have done one or something. Can you still just do it like on flat ground? Oh yeah, flip? yeah. I okay, can do. Cool. I can do a kickflip and a heel flip and stuff on flat. Sure. But not a 360 right flip, though. <laughs> All right. And then, oh, so this guy's asking about Yemen. So here's the deal, man. It's, it's real hard, but he's saying, so how do the Houthis and all these tie together with the different thing? So the southern separatists around Aden have been allied with the UAE for a while and therefore with the Saudis and the so-called Yemeni government, the official Yemeni government in exile in their war against the Houthis. And their war first to keep the Houthis out and then I guess helping with the war 
against them too. And they are the separatists, the Southern Transitional Council. They essentially want to just be the Southern Socialist Republic of Yemen again, how it was back in the days. The Houthis are out of the north. I mean, and, and the Houthis really do have um, dominance. They're not, lo- uh, they're not losing the capital city anytime soon. And so it seems to me, actually, you know, if a faction from the north is really dominant in the capital in the middle, it seems like letting the south go would be a pretty good compromise for that. You know, go ahead. But uh, I don't think that's the case. I think that there are nationalists in the south who would join up with the Houthi government, whether they're Houthis or not, to try to keep the country united. We don't really know what would happen if it wasn't for Saudi and UAE intervention. Um which I don't think is going to end anytime soon. I don't know. The UAE has pulled out most of their troops, but they're still backing mercenaries there. And um, so, okay, a couple more things. So he was saying, so what's the birth of the Houthi movement? Yes, in previous days, it was Saudi attempts to, they had a perfect status quo, which was to pay the northern Shia Zaydis of Yemen to not make trouble. And they paid them not very much, and they had a good deal. But then they started sending in Wahhabist preachers to preach all this right-wing Sunni stuff that these Zaydi Shia, who they're very much like the Sunnis, but they're not that radical to the right the way these Bin Ladenite more types are. And so um, they really rejected that, and that became the basis of their armed rebellion in the first place. And I think that was back in the 60s. And uh, I don't know when they really started going by the Houthis. I know the Egyptians attacked them and lost and withdrew back then um and uh so in more recent times i'm trying to remember like at what point salah started fighting them i think the saudis had backed down but that was like the core of their you know militancy then it's an irony of the war that when salah so to well to tell the story quickly when when obama started bombing al-qaeda at the beginning of his presidency in 09 in southern uh, Yemen, he paid the dictator, Saleh, in the capital city, there in the center of the country, pretty much, in guns and money to let him do it. But Saleh then was playing a double game and was working with those Al-Qaeda guys and some Al-Islam Muslim Brotherhood types to attack the Houthis, his enemies up in the north. But every time he did that, they beat him and beat his army back. And every time that happened, they got more and more powerful. And so this kept going on. This dynamic kept playing out through the Arab Spring where the Houthis came to town and protested with everybody else, you know, peacefully in the roundabout there for regime change. Now, at the very end of 2011, or maybe it's the very beginning of 2012, Hillary and who was the Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton, and the Saudis came and swooped in and intervened and preempted a real kind of revolution and, and reformation of the Yemeni government there and just uh, supported kind of a bogus election to install Saleh's vice president, Hadi. Well, Hadi was just as bad as Saleh, only worse, because he didn't have this kind of support that Saleh had worked for 30 years very carefully to build up his web of power in the country to support him. And Hadi didn't have any of that. So when he attacked the Houthis, they completely destroyed him and marched on the capital and took over his army 
And here's the trick. Salah, it turns out, even though he's not a Houthi, he's a Zaydi Shia from the north. And so he made an alliance with the Houthis, the group that he had attacked over and over and over again and lost against when he was the president. He was like, you know what? If I'm fired, fine, but I'm taking my army with me. And he took his army with him. And like half the army or more followed Salah and broke away from Hadi and went and made an alliance with the Houthis. And they were the ones who then marched on the capital city and took it over. So it's one of those, you know, kind of ironies where, wait, Salah's on the Houthis side now? You're kidding. But then in December of 2017, Salah tried to stab the Houthis in the back and make a deal with the Saudis to get back in there. But the Houthis killed him. And so that got nowhere. And it was actually kind of ironic and funny because I was saying at the time that, look, man, if America and particularly Saudi were okay with Salah for 30 years and now the Houthis are okay with him, then how about everybody stop fighting and we'll compromise and just put Salah back in there? Or I don't know, his son or his cousin or someone from his faction that is agreeable. Not that that's perfect, but to stop the war, right? If And it, it was logical, and I remember bringing it up, like kind of joking, sort of like, let's call off Saddam's trial and just leave him in there before this thing gets worse. Like, hey, we could just go ahead and let Salah come back. If the Houthis can agree to him and, and the Saudis can, then what's the problem? You know, the Southern secessionists left out of that argument, but still... But so I guess, you know, Salah wasn't quite listening to my podcast because what he heard was he should make a deal with the Saudis behind the Houthis back. And that didn't work. They stabbed him in the back, got him first. But he shouldn't have done that. He should have said to the Houthis, hey, guys, let's make an offer to the Saudis and we'll make a deal and I'll pay the hell out of y'all and it'll be fine or whatever. He should have done it, but he didn't do it that way. So now he's dead. And now, and so the war is now four and a half years old and hundreds of thousands of people have been killed. At least 233,000 have been killed according to the UN. And, um, you know, a significant percentage of that, probably a majority of that are children. Um, and so, yeah, it's an absolute catastrophe It's you know, minimum 85,000 dead kids. Remember, even just a, not even a year ago, they're going, yeah, as many as 10,000 people have died. That's funny. How could as many as 10,000 people have died in a war year after year after year after year after year? And it's still 10,000. It turns out just the children is 85,000 at least. And beyond that, you know, 233,000 killed in the violence there. And we don't know how many other people starved to death or been deprived to death there. It's it's the worst thing. You know, if Russia was doing this to any country in the world, say this was Russia in Mongolia, this would be the absolute crisis of the century. You know, when, when this was Sudan's government in Western Sudan against the farmers and the taking the side of the nomads against the farmers in Western Sudan in Darfur, there's George Clooney and all these people that can stop screaming about how we got to invade to protect these people. You know, but this is the Americans doing this to this country that never dreamed of attacking us. 
you know? And in fact, you know, the Houthis have this slogan, death to America and death to Israel and death to the Jews and all this, but they only invented that slogan to make fun of Salah for taking American money and being an ally of George W. Bush when George W. Bush invaded Iraq. So it's not like they ever had any intent to come and blow up our Statue of Liberty or anything, man. They were just scoring political points off of their dictator by mocking him as being our servant. You know, that's the worst thing you can say about him is their stupid little slogan. Has nothing to do with hurting us at all. Never did. I don't know. I can't get over this thing, man. The just the not just the death and the horror of it all, but the silence and the apathy about it. There's even been some good moves in Congress to try to fight it or whatever. But this should be the mass movement in America. You know? Where are all the social justice people? Where are all the constitutional conservatives? Where are all the everybody's? Where's everybody? Where's everybody who ever said it's wrong to commit a genocide? And it's the ratio between the amount of suffering and the amount of anyone giving a shit on this side of the ledger is just completely out of bounds. It's insane. You know, it's the same thing with Somalia across the way. It's not like like I'm saying about the the poor blacks of South Central L.A. in the 80s getting locked up for smoking Ronald Reagan's cocaine. That's not fair. You know, this ought to get to everybody's most basic sense of fairness of how you treat other people. It's not okay, but it continues on anyway. I mean, well, like you say, if you bring up Yemen, then you have to blame Obama and Trump. So I guess it's at the fault of uh, both political spectrums, but that's relevant because I don't know. They're all on the same team. But yeah, it, it sucks. It's awful. Yep. And you're right that that partisanship has so much to do with it because you can't accuse Trump without also accusing Obama and you can't accuse Obama without also accusing Trump. So both sides just remain silent and don't accuse anybody at all. Just change the subject to some other nonsense. So, anyway. yeah, man. Um, oh, oh, and he said uh, Gorbachev, um, why Gorbachev is my, when we were talking about Russia, why Gorbachev would be the interview I want. I just would like to hear him tell what it looked like to end the Cold War and disarm all those nukes and all that from his point of view. Um, there's so much to that story. But, you know, especially for you youngins, I mean, I was like 14 when this happened. But for people who missed it or were born after this, this is the most unbelievable miracle in all of human history. When the Soviet Union simply ceased to exist over the space of two and a half years. And then, you know, something on the order of hundreds of millions of people were set free who were living in totalitarian slavery. And there was no great war. The whole damn thing just fell apart. And it started when people started sneaking across the Austrian border, or across the Hungarian border into Austria, I think it was. And they didn't get shot. And then after that, it was just floodgates. The Berlin Wall came down. People started fleeing across into West Berlin and therefore, you know, passage to West Germany and the West. And then that was it. Over the space of two and a half years, commie government after commie government just fell and fell and fell. The Soviet Union 
Red Army completely withdrew and pulled back behind the Ural Mountains, you know, a distance of 2,000 miles or something. And they just let 17 countries go free. And almost nobody was killed. The commie dictatorship in Romania, they got put up against the wall and shot. But that was about it. That was about it. It was just absolutely the most unbelievable freaking thing in the whole world. And to not appreciate it is to not appreciate the level of horror that the totalitarian Soviet regime had inflicted on those people. And this is the worst, one of the worst mistakes of all of human history to create a communist dictatorship anywhere, but especially the way that worked out. My God, tens of millions of people killed and hundreds if you count the way they helped spread communism around the world and then the whole Cold War and all of this madness. And the whole thing just came down like I Dream a Genie. Sorry, I used that same comparison twice in one interview. But yeah, it was it really was something else, man. It was the greatest thing ever. And Gorbachev, but really, you know, and I was saying really, today to, to Ogar Alperovitz, whatever the hell that, in a way, you could say, it sounds totally crazy, doesn't it? But in a way, H.W. Bush was the greatest man who ever lived. I mean, he signed, be, all other things being equal, he signed treaties that removed tens of thousands of H-bombs from service, from deployment, from hair trigger alert. I mean, I guess, hell, he helped put them there, you know, previously or whatever. Not really. I guess, you know, in a way, yeah, he'd help with the buildup when he was the vice president. He was somewhat responsible for that. But still, all other things being equal, can you imagine anything greater that anyone else has ever done? Then sign a deal that says I'm going to have my guys take down these nuclear bombs and take them apart and throw them away. Tens of thousands of them. Enough to destroy all of humanity over and over and over and over again. You know, and there's he didn't get rid of all of them. He could have done better, I guess. But in the scheme of things, there's really no other thing that anyone else ever did that compared to that. You know what I mean? Ron Paul delivered 4,000 babies. That's nice and everything, but... <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, wow. you hear me. And I hate so it, George Bush. I'm I'm being a bit ironic there. Senior, I mean. I really hate the boy. But you understand what I mean? That, hey, all other things being equal, that's some pretty good stuff. So uh, it was the natural self-destruction of communism that really ended it. It wasn't also just Operation Cyclone and, like, CIA pressure against the... It was absolutely all those things. I mean, communism well, I is mean, no way to run an one, empire, but they... It was also the Saudis had an agreement to drop the price of oil through the floor. Now, listen, you guys aren't going to make any money off of oil for a few years, but it'll be fine. You're going to help us destroy the USSR, and you'll have our undying appreciation for it. And the Saudis agreed to that. Because the Soviets, if they couldn't export oil, they had nothing, man. And so that was a huge blow against them, too. So, yeah, it was, you know, they were weak as hell and USA knocked them over with a feather kind of thing. you know. Which is ironic because the whole Red Scare thing really gives communism a little too much credit than it really deserves. Right. Yeah, of course. You know, um, Andrew Coburn wrote this book and I'm afraid I haven't read it yet, but I do have it. And uh, I've interviewed him and we talked about it before. And it was called That's The Threat. And it was written in, two, in 1980 published in 1981 and it was about how the soviet army in eastern europe was just 
the most tissue of paper tigers that they had at best. If you're exaggerating because you're being friendly and to make them look good, you could say that maybe they have one week's worth of gasoline, one week's worth of ammunition. That, wow. that rather than being able to pour right into Western Germany and we'd have no way to stop them other than using nukes, that in fact, nah, we could have held them off with a couple of good hand grenades, you know, essentially, mm-hmm. that they were completely a paper tiger, that the entire threat was essentially, and that morale as well was just, you want to talk about a government program, talk about the Red Army in the 1980s, bunch of dudes sitting around drinking and playing cards and not doing their job, not being prepared to do it either, you know? So it made, it was, it was good PR to pretend that they were indestructible, but they were quite destructible. And, you know, in fact, Robert Gates, who famously was Bush and Obama's secretary of defense, he was the deputy director of the CIA and then the director of the CIA, um, you know, under Casey and then after Casey and the whole Soviet Union unraveled on his watch and he never warned about it a single time his cia did not say this is happening this is going to happen this is what's going on right now they were the last ones to know and the reason why was because gates had spent his last 15 years of his career lying and pretending that the soviet union was huge and pretending that you know their production is higher than ever and their gdp is higher than ever and their submarines are better than ever and all of these things but it just wasn't true And so he was so busy lying and pretending the Soviets were 10 feet tall that um, he got caught flat footed when it turned out that they were just a hollow, rotten old tree. So good times. But that's the job is having an excuse to fight, not a reason to stop fighting. So there you go. There you go. Prices, people, they're important. They matter. You got to have prices, man. This has been another Q&A episode. We should let them go with that. So scotthorton.org slash show for these and uh, scotthorton.org slash interviews for the good stuff. Thanks, Phil. See ya.